0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Joan Turner about her book on Writtenness The Cultural Politics of Academic Writing, published by Bloomsbury Academic in 2018. What's so special about the written word? Well, for one, in the line of prose, we hear no accent. You would think, actually, that the writers of this world had it easier, from a social perspective, than the speakers, since a text is produced silently and at such a distance to the moment of communication that even the less sure of themselves have ample opportunity to make their texts look like the texts of people who are quite sure of themselves. If only things were that simple, because the truth of the matter is that in speaking, where we out ourselves within seconds as American or British or neither of the above, awareness has risen, and with it so has acceptance, or at least tolerance. This is not to say that the speaker will not be judged by how he or she sounds, but this is to say that the severity of that judgment has moderated with time. For writing, time has had much the opposite effect. In her book, Joan Turner delineates the standardization processes which have led to current practice in academic writing. The scientific revolution and the founding of the Royal Society, both 17th century events, proved pivotal to what we now regard as the academic in academic writing. But the really pivotal moment came later. When the norm for writing espoused by Royal Society scientists had become the widely accepted norm of writing by any scientist, everyone just seemed to forget that, being a norm, the Royal Society way of writing had first had to be established. And I'm not splitting hairs here, because the Royal Society norm takes a definitive position on the interplay between thinking and writing. Because in this norm, language becomes a weather vane to a person's thinking clear, pointing north, unclear, spinning in circles. And despite the wealth of evidence to support our contemporary functionalist model of language and writing, the writers of scientific texts down to this very day, really down to right now during this podcast, the writers of scientific prose today follow the dictates of John Locke. And they equate clear thinking. With clear prose, they define easy reading as good writing, and they call out any inability to achieve either as the certain indication that the writer is inadequate to the task and inadequate to the research. A person can't write poorly but still be capable of the science. That's not how it is. Joan Joan Turner's aim in On Writtenness is to expose the textual ideology of academic writing, which would pronounce such judgments as if simple facts. Joan wants to debunk the stylistic hegemony that valorizes content, that impinges on writer agency, and that exalts the English language to the arbiter of good or bad research. Joan's method she calls writtenness, and her broader methodology is sociolinguistic. Writtenness separates the academic text into four components. And through these, Joan organizes a meticulous breakdown of just what academics are thinking when they think good text. Writtenness first refers to the text as product, to a use of language which has become an object. Text on pages, text online, text in notebooks, whether paper or electronic, are present, and without further additions being necessary, texts are present to any reader's perusal. The second component of writtenness is the writer's effort in making such products as texts are. Philosophers and critics can say what they like, but every author knows, as actually every philosopher and critic should know, that no text ever has written itself. Writers work, and often enough, they work hard. Writtenness, thirdly, makes a part of culture, and the writtenness representative of academic culture is the writtenness of dichotomies. Content precedes and supersedes the expression of content. The substance of an argument can be abstracted and extracted from the meanings, from the means of arguing. However, as Joan Turner so clearly demonstrates, the truth of the matter is that it takes thinking to achieve, say, a knowledge of genetics, just as much as it takes thinking to achieve a communication of that knowledge of genetics. In fact, the communication may take more thinking, Because during thinking, communication occurs, too, where the scientist is actually acquiring her knowledge of genetics. Writtenness and, if I may, knowingness are at least equal. The final component to the concept of writtenness is metadiscursive in nature. In other words, not only belonging to texts and to writers and to culture, writtenness has also lodged itself between texts and between writers and between cultures. And writtenness has become a factor in the evaluative regime of academic institutions. Write wrong, and your thoughts are wrong. Write idiosyncratically, and your career can shorten. Write to another audience than to whom you should, and your texts will not get published. Writtenness helps decide, if you will, government policy. And policy, as we all know, decides oh so much in the lives of us academics. Joan Turner began working as an EFL teacher at the Freie Universität in Berlin. Right away, she moved, too, into English for Specific Purposes, ESP. That sparked a career-long interest in study skills. And until the time she took a f- full-time post at Goldsmiths University of London, Joan worked in adults further and higher education, teaching variously study skills, ESOL, to adult immigrants, EFL, and EAP. At Goldsmiths, Joan developed EAP provision for international students, then a novel educational strategy. And for 25 years, she led this program and saw it expand from teaching mainly foundation course students to teaching students across the spectrum, from undergraduate to PhD. Joan's own specialism became working with PhD students and predominantly with their writing. Joan Turner's experience in teaching and administration grounds her research interests in the language content dichotomy and in the institutional frictions around perceptions of language and writing work. Onwrittenness is, therefore, an apt culmination of Joan's scholarly endeavors, the perfect book then for an interview with this important writing researcher. So let's begin today's episode, Joan Turner and OnWrittenness. Joan, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel, and thank you for that wonderful introduction of the book. Um, I think you've basically
0: said everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's very much more to say um, (laughs) from the author herself. Uh, One of the uh, things that comes out in um, your bio is that you do very much have a career that pointed in the direction of this sort of research as well. Could you perhaps fill in the sort of skeleton picture I gave of where you came from and how you arrived at this sort of thinking?
1: Well, I've, I've always, I, I originally studied uh, modern foreign languages, uh, principally German, but also French. So, and these degrees, back when I did them, included uh, philosophy and as well as literature, language, linguistics, uh, and so on. So I've always had an interest in philosophy. Um, and while my sort of teaching practice, pedagogical practice, being so relentlessly practical as it is, didn't actually Uh, take into account these more philosophical issues. I was interested in exploring them, um, and that's what I kind of allowed myself to do in in this book, Um, particularly the relationship between uh, the value system surrounding the uptake of of academic writing and, and how that came to be. In other words, how... Did we come to evaluate academic writing in the way that we do? Um, And going back to the the 17th century philosophers such as uh, John Locke and the and other sort of political theorists such as Thomas Hobbes and um, theologians such as Bishop Wilkins, uh, we can see the importance base. Placed on the communication of knowledge. Obviously, at that time, the so-called scientific revolution, there was so much new, so many new discoveries being made, um, it became really important to communicate them to a wider audience. And the, the kind of template for that communication, I suppose, was the Royal Society uh, procedure of having witnesses to experiments. Um, so that they, they they could be well so that they could be witnessed so that some nobody was getting away with sort of pretending they'd discovered something that wasn't actually the case and so that need for for demonstrability for for, for clarity um, has translated into uh, an well a rhetoricity if you like of of clarity and exposition um, which, which continues. Um, and I think the, the ease, the notion that, that this is easily communicated, that what you want to say is easily communicated in writing, remains with us. And I think that can be done. I'm not saying it's impossible to be clear and succinct and concise or whatever, uh, but it's incredibly hard work. And that the notion of the the intellectual labor of getting the writing right is one which tends to be neglected, um, and the assumption is that it's very easy to write. So this this leads to a kind of a hierarchy between content and writing, where write, where content is is in the privileged position. Of course, writing, the word writing, can also mean content, can also refer to content. So uh, that was one of the reasons why I preferred to use writtenness, um, which in in its nouniness, if you like, uh, indicates content, uh, a topic, makes, makes writing a topic in its own right with a social and cultural history. Just like any other uh, topic, uh, academic topic, um, and also and writtenness also emphasizes the the labor of having been written. So, uh, the labor that goes into achieving uh, writtenness, um, and that was another issue that I wanted to to highlight. Um, the as well as as well as the the Um, sort of related to this kind of dichotomy between content and language is of course also the institutional dichotomy between established kind of academic disciplines and and language work Um, and language work and writing work tends to be uh, established within a kind of support mechanism rather than as part of the um, the mission of of the university itself. Um, And this structural condition makes it very difficult for language and writing practitioners to have the same kind of status as as what might be called normal academics. Um, this this leads to to frictions, of course. Um, I could, uh, language and writing pra- practitioners don't like to be perceived as as might be the case uh, grammar doctors or proofreaders, because of course, as writing practitioners themselves know, this work is much more um, complex and involves a lot of different knowledges of, of different kinds um, so th- this leads to a situation for example where where proofreading um, as it's certainly as it's happening as it's as it's happening in contemporary higher education international higher education is changing its meaning um, because many, many disciplinary-based staff uh, ask their students to have their work proofread so that they can better understand it in alignment with their, their own experience, presumably, of proofreading, whereby that is, that is standard practice in any publication. Um, you have to go through this process of proofreading, and indeed you often need to go through the process of proofreading. Um, but it's being used in the context of international higher education to mean much more than proofreading or to require much more than, than proofreading. So any kind of English that, that doesn't conform to perceived norms or to, or doesn't facilitate a, a smooth read uh, leads to suggestions of proofreading. Um, and this is causing problems, not only of kind of academic, um, uh, what, what's the word? Um, there's a, this there's, there's a whole new um, institutionalized perspective of making sure that that, that you're, well, oh, there's a word for it. I can't, sorry, it's just gone.
0: But That's all right.
1: <laughs> but it's, it, um, well, the fact that that students have to usually sign something to say that what they're submitting is all their own work, um, whereas uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
1: what might so be issues
0: good, of plagiarism then yes, basically
1: plagiarism, but there's, there's, there's a kind of it's it's a fairly new field within the university of of making sure you know that that, that the academic work is well pl- plagiarism is one of the issues, yeah. Um, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: proofreading, I think, is not, proofreading is difficult uh, because it's acceptable, whereas plagiarism isn't acceptable. Um, but it, by being acceptable, it actually masks the, the amount of work that possibly goes into a text by other people other than the individual submitting the work. And yet, the university still operates on the principle that of the individual author, and that the work submitted is all one's own. Uh, well, mo- mostly there are obviously cases where there's where teamwork is 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 the actual task required, and that that's a different context. Um, so, proofreading, in a sense, has is emblematic of a kind of transition cultural transition from what might be called an historical transition from what might be called print culture and the affordances of the digital age, you know, the ease with which texts can be moved around from one person to another, around the world even, back and forth, and this is invisible to a large extent. Um, so this kind of... It, Em- proofreading then emblematizes also the the precarity, if you like, around writtenness. You know who's who's actually doing the writing, um, and also masks the 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 nature of getting the writing right and how arduous a task that is.
0: Well, you um, certainly outdid me by just covering the entire book in those few minutes <laughs> when you said that my introduction was uh, saying most of what I, what there was to say. I, 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 I saw your footstep into every single chapter of the book right now and, yeah. and tried to keep up with you thinking where my next question would come. Yeah. I think proofreading, though, came out as something that... Um, did, sort of combines quite a lot of what you want to say about writtenness. And writtenness itself, I uh, want to commend you on having chosen as a word because it does encapsulate so much of mm-hmm. the things that would be missed if we were using a term like writing. But to, to get briefly back to proofreading, I know that in my experience, there is with uh, teaching people who perhaps, you know, haven't come from a strong reading and writing um humanities type background. So I'm thinking maybe in the natural sciences, mm-hmm. there is this feeling that um, you write the text and you proofread it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think most people who you know have worked in philosophy or English studies for sure, realize that you write the text, you throw the text out, you write the text, you rewrite it, you edit, you proofread, and then you throw out a section, and then you rewrite, and the process just goes on and on, right? I mean, I don't need to belabor it. But the point is, is that it's very messy. And that seems not to be reaching, if you like, the other side of the divide. That doesn't seem to be something that is easily communicated to people who aren't comfortable with that sort of approach to writing.
1: Yes, I very much agree with that. And of course, that is, of course, the writing practitioner's job. I mean, one of the main things. Um, we <laughs> say to students all the time is you must draft and you must redraft. Um, I, think, I think in the American writing centres, it's revision rather than redrafting. But in, in Britain, it tends to be redrafting. And that kind of process approach to writing is, is central, I think, to writing pedagogy. And of course, it is, as you say, it, it's it's not necessarily the norm. Uh, I think in the book I did give the example of of one um, he was a scientist who had written the book and he'd written uh, uh, an overview of his process of writing or the difficulty he had writing his book um, because he hadn't realized it it, it required so much drafting and, and redrafting he He was knowledgeable obviously in his subject area and he thought. The book would more or less just write itself. Um, so yes, I think uh, I agree with you that 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 getting that idea across, that that writing is is not simple, doesn't just take one take, um, is is perhaps difficult with with scientists. I think it's also more, made more difficult today uh, with the need for new. Uh, findings to be made public very quickly, very speedily. Um, And of course, that doesn't allow for time to adjust and hone the writing.
0: There's always, when a, when a new term comes into use, there's always a pretty, you can have a pretty sure sense that there's something going on. And the scientists that I've met talk about their research being scooped. Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, someone just beat them to the publication yeah. punch. And th- that's precisely what you're talking about. It is indeed very high pressure and high paced. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you t- you talked about um, in the book and briefly mentioned in your uh, um sort of intro, uh, that uh, you have these different knowledges of different kinds that uh, writing instructors or people in writing practice are very used to trying to convey. You mentioned process, for example. Mm -hmm. That would be one of those different types of knowledge. Would you Perhaps be able to sketch out a few of the others, because in the process case what we see is that this is a complex sort of knowledge. It's knowledge clearly of how do I use language to work with content, which is an interesting way perhaps of putting it to, to work with content, but there's mm-hmm. also an emotional side to it as well. I mean, to have written something and to throw it out takes you know and these are the things that also need to be taught but um if if we might also just for the listeners sake sketch out some of these other knowledges that we continue to that we typically think of when we're talking about uh, uh, literacies if you like
1: Mm -hmm. well obviously there's a a lot of knowledge about language that that is required um and i don't just mean grammatical knowledge or sentence level grammar but that is also necessary and discourse analysis, discourse level uh, rhetorical stru- structuring, um, knowledge that different disciplines might require different genres. They might require different writing types of writing tasks. Um, and writing practitioners, EAP tutors have to research what different, what re- the requirements are. In, in the different departments. So they they have to be willing, to, I think, to gain some understanding of um, the, the major disciplines of the people they're teaching writing to. Um, and that's, you know, that's not something that, that everyone can do. Um, there's also knowledge of, uh, well, if it's a class, rather than a one-to-one knowledge of class management, How how do you get, students communicating with each other in groups and uh, talking, their, talking about their experiences. Um, I think, for example, it's often uh, the case that the the writing class, say even for PhD students, if, if it's a class, often it's one-to-one, but if it's a class, um, they have the opportunity to talk about their, their work with each other uh, that they don't otherwise have in in their own disciplines um, and that that touches on what you also said about that the affective dimension so the writing class uh, enables people to to work on this to have some experience of discussing their work with with other people who know nothing about it um, and i think that kind of work is is is, is very valuable as well um, other oh, knowledges, um, There probably are a lot of others, but they're not.
0: They're not coming yeah, no. That, I mean, that's uh, that, that's that's all I meant, just to give an impression of of, yeah. of what is going on in in writing development, which, as you rightly put in the book and, and briefly mentioned, isn't really perceived. No. Um, I keep wanting to say on the other side of the divide. I think institutionally is fair because that's another case that you make very strongly in the book that we're dealing with, um, you know, an institutional level. Uh, setup that has privileged one side and somehow put the other in, as you've said, a, a support role. Yes. But the interesting thing that I find is that, as as you just mentioned, the EAP practitioners or any other writing um, scholars or, or or support people will often have to get very close, even inside of a discipline which is foreign to their background. And I find that already. It must. It must be an indication of the closeness of our work to content. Or, on the other end, I've heard plenty of reports and read some as well where people who are writing, say, from inside of microbiology, they want to reach a wider audience and decide then also to write a book, which isn't really the norm in the natural sciences. And what they found in the process is trying to as some people would negatively put, pejoratively put, simplify things, but you could also just say trying to explain things, they've seen in the writing that they hadn't necessarily understood some of the more basic concepts of their science. So again, that for me is how the writing moves into the area of content. Are these, this is one of your areas of expertise. I wonder if you could perhaps uh, flesh out the, the implications that I'm, I'm drawing there. Um,
1: well, I suppose it's, it's the kind of Ultimately, the writing to learn <laughs> aspect that that writing actually helps clarify your knowledge. So it's completely the opposite of what Bishop Wilkins and others have have claimed that that if you if you have clear thoughts and clear ideas, then you can communicate them clearly in in writing. Um, and it's not quite like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's a more of an interanimation between writing to clarify and then rethinking what you thought you were, you were going to say um, because the, the writing has, has pointed up um, contradictions or, or whatever. So you have to go back over it and rethink. So it's not a me- mechanistic process it's very much a to-and-fro a to, a to and fro thinking, rethinking, writing, rewriting, um, and, and, and so on. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Mm, yeah. Uh, getting back to the day of Bishop Wil- uh, Wilkins I, I, and John Locke, I wanted to just touch briefly on the one point there that you made where um, interest was shown in some sort of an artificial language being... Created so that uh, this sort of communication could go on even more clearly, if you like. Um, I I also wonder if you were able to, or if you came across why it was that Latin wasn't serving their purposes. Because this is a pivotal pivotal moment in in early modern period where Latin is you know being overtaken by all the vernaculars. Why wasn't it that that didn't as it had so many other times in history, especially uh, also in England. led people back to Latin?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's an interesting question because it kind of parallels what we've got with English um, as, as the international language. So, you know, the, well, the, the, the comparison at the time with the um, so-called real character languages or ideal languages that would make sure there was no misunderstanding uh, was with math- mathematics, Um, So the aim was to make language as close as possible to to mathematics, where I assume um, communication in mathematical symbols was was deemed to be straightforward. Um, And of course, none of these uh, regimes worked. So neither Bishop Wilkins' real character nor Leibniz's uh, attempts at, uh, at creating an artificial language worked. Um, so I don't really know why Latin was no longer, I, possibly because there was actually a nationalistic kind of fervour, um, you know, a, a desire to have national languages and make the la- national languages work um, in their in national interests. Um, so, you know, English... As, as, as the social the linguist Mugaridge, uh, no Mugglestone said um, that um, English was being seen as a scholarly language as well as um, just as a, an everyday language. So it was being it was capable of being put to scholarly use as well, and it was obviously socially important to to promote. The language in 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 that way, so it might have been that rather than the fact that like that Latin wasn't working as the international language, I don't really know to be honest on that. But, I
0: have had yeah I've had two thoughts on it, but without any research to them. But um, uh, you're the person to bounce them off of. Uh, the first is that English had been so Latinized by that point, whether it was through French or Latin, that it served purpose with very similar terms. And if you couple that with the nationalistic uh argument that you're making that would certainly position it well across from Latin. And the other is that English had the potential to be more modern because of the classicism or the scholasticism from medieval times that Latin had gone through and stood for, perhaps at that point. It seems, you know, the the clearer choice, if you like, yeah?
1: Yes, yes, that's true. A lot of Latin, Latin, well, Latinate structures are embodied in, in English, as in most European languages, um, actually, but um, so it hadn't gone away completely. Um, but the, the, the point I kind of wanted to develop was the, uh, the parallel between Latin then and, and English now as the kind of international language, and perhaps um, the assumption uh, that there was convergence around. Latin at the time, or English now, when in fact uh, there isn't. You know, there are lots of Englishes, and it, the the centripetal assumptions that, that everyone is writing the same English are are actually not right. <laughs> um, they are assumptions rather than the reality, and the reality is is much more centrifugal. Uh, with lots of different uses and varieties of English take, taking place, which, of course, the use of proofreading is used to kind of uh, gloss over or to wipe clean or whatever.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, you, you make the one wonderful uh, illustration of that point in the book where you say, so we have an essay, an academic essay, uh, say third year essay in, in Korea, in Denmark and in New York right <laughs> are they're, they're all labeled by their institutions which are all meant to be also also internationalized institutions as academic essays but will we find there the same content will we find there the same english the same academic writing <laughs> i mean i think it's obvious no right
1: yeah I, I would imagine so, but it's it's kind of interesting research topic. <laughs> I'd quite like to it is yeah explore that further, but I'm pretty sure no they wouldn't they wouldn't be the same so even at you know the level of genre as well as at the level of of Lexus, um there's go, there is huge heterogeneity really um but that's not acknowledged there's the assumption is that it's the uniform English that's being spoken internationally across the world. Um, and there, I think there's opportunities in that, you know, for 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 different conceptualizations of international education, international higher education. But these opportunities are not taken. It's it's all, you know, the, the desire still seems to be to have this unified, um, perfect or um, consensual language, which which in this case is deemed to be English or is deemed to be, yeah, is, is in fact English and it's deemed to be unified and understood intelligibly by an international audience and an international, well, um, uh, by international writers, international students.
0: That puts me in mind of what you say about the elite economy of English. Mm-hmm. There you uh, bring in the terminology from uh, Benedict Aniston, um the imagined community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you perhaps um, get into this idea of the imaginary involved? Because th- I think that brings us uh, one step further with what you were just talking about, how we have this unitary vision of English and yet it's not really the case. How, how does this terminology from Anderson actually help us understand what's going on there?
1: Yes, well, it... Because it's the, the what is imagined is that this uh, that international higher education through the medium of English is treating everybody equally and everybody um, in, is is using English in the same way and communicating with each other uh, without problem. Um, and in, but this is imagined. It's not the case. It's not the reality. Um, but it's important to assume it's the reality because the notion of international, for example, has 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 status and uh, is used also to rank individual universities. How international a university is perceived to be. Uh, is going to further its progression up the 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 global rankings. Um, so there's a lot involved in in the terminology international, but it it it's not the reality. What what it purports is is not the reality. So that that's really what I wanted to get at with the notion of Im- imagined communities or Im- the imaginary of of a uniform English throughout um, international higher education, and,
0: and that and that is on the theoretical level, and and does do a very good job of trying of explaining what's going on on the let's say on the more communal level, the level of say one university or so. The way that seems to work out, as you explain in the book, is that you have a very you have a sort of regime that's set up which evaluates writing along the lines of evaluating also abilities, intellectual abilities in particular. Yeah. So poor writing is, you know, a proxy essentially for not being a good student. This comes out in particular in the uh, chapter that you have on polished prose and its friction. Um, I wonder if you could bring this imaginedness down also to that more concrete level of how it's actually affecting the way our students and our future researchers are even learning in their disciplines.
1: my My issue was really with the fact the extent to which students are stigmatized uh, for for poor English or whatever. And then that translates into them being deemed not intellectually capable of undertaking the studies they're, they're, they're undertaking. Um, and that is, is, is really in, insidious, I think. And, th- and this is happening, or this is the case, all, all over the world. I gave some examples from students in uh, universities in South Africa as well as students in, in the UK, international students, particularly in, in the UK, uh, you know, being stigmatised because their language seemed to be lacking or not, not up to scratch. Um, for example, one student actually, of course, students do have some power in this, particularly if they're more advanced students, say PhD students. Uh, so I gave the example of one student who had um, a P- PhD student who had actually changed departments, changed supervisors, um, because his, his the his original supervisor, as he thought or termed, termed it, was more interested in his grammar than in what he had to say. Um, so this student then went to another department and, and uh, was accepted there uh, because that particular supervisor seemed to be more interested in his ideas. So there's all sorts of conflicts go go on across the world, uh, just because language ability, uh, especially when it's an additional language, is equated with intellectual ability. Um, And this, this is another issue which needs to be talked about a lot more, I think.
0: I find also in my own experience and uh, in teaching writing that very often you'll find that people who don't have English as their first language take their difficulties in writing as being difficulties in writing in English, because you know they're coming from another cultural or linguistic background and. Th- I'm not going to deny that that doesn't play a role. And in some cases, it plays more or less of a role. But what needs, I think, also to be made clear is that facing difficulties in writing is the way most people face writing. Mm -hmm. And when you add to that complex topics, complex argumentation, complex content in a conventionalized form, the academic uh, written norm, as as you've so well described it in your book, uh, then... I mean, anyone is going to face difficulties with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely right. Um, I think that's that, that's that tradition of accepting that everyone needs help with writing or needs to develop their, their writing, their writing expertise, their expertise in writing is, is better developed in the United States, where there's writing across the curriculum, with the writing across the curriculum model. Um, and I think increasingly in the UK also, um, so-called home students, that is students, you know, born in Britain or, or not even necessarily born in Britain, but now living in Britain, um, need or want um, help with, with writing. Um, and I think it's a pity. I mean, <laughs> in some ways, I'd like to go back to the medieval trivium and sort of have 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 language and writing at the core of university uh, activity rather than than on the periphery. Um, of course, that's not going to happen. But um, there there is much more need to have have it embedded in the actual um, program structure rather than something that just happens on the side. Um, one, of, one of the first articles I wrote on, on academic writing, or what was actually on e- English for academic purposes, was, was titled um, EAP, Mainstream Current or Peripheral Flow. And it was, it was, all, it was addressing that, that particular dynamic. Um, something which is actually core and central is is seen as as, as peripheral and so that that the notion that writing is important for for everyone I totally agree with. I mean I think that's also behind my interest in, in study skills because study skills is about making explicit what tends to be implicit in in university education and you know for the last, 10, 20 years or so, we've been going through what in in Britain is called widening participation, so uh, encouraging more students from diverse backgrounds to attend university. Um, And they they often are not familiar with with the norms that that perhaps some university staff or or faculty take, take for granted um, and so they they, they do need um, additional help with this, um, and again that is that is something which is underestimated. It's not. I should I should perhaps not have said additional help because it's it's not so much help. It's a kind of natural development. You know, in the first year of university, uh, if you're studying um, history, you you. You assume a first-year course in history will be a beginner's course, um, but you assume that, that writing or the ability to write is a kind of prerequisite and not something that develops. Um, and I think that, that writing very much is something that develops. Um, and so, you know, why can't it be treated in the same way as, as, as any other subject?
0: That puts me in in mind of the example that you gave from, I know it was in psychology. Um, It was from a book that you cited where professors or lecturers in uh, psychology were showing leniency on the content end Mm -hmm. for people who were in their first year, uh, as long as the writing sort of was fit to purpose, if you like. and. a more simplified or perhaps problematic view in the psychology end could be, let's say, overlooked or treated with a bit more care. And I think that's also sort of symptomatic for this divide between the writing and the content, because there's another way of seeing that exact same scenario. And it is that that is the level at which this particular first year student was able to put the content into his or her own thinking and then pass it on to someone else. So in other words, in the same moment, as much as they understood of the psychology was as much as they were able to write. Mm-hmm. And that and that, to me seems to show again the nearness of, of content and communication. And that just very much as you say, we need to rethink this peripheral and center uh, positioning of things that it needs to... <laughs> Yeah, we need to slow it down, perhaps, so that they're not spinning around each other and bring them into a position where they can just finally come to rest.
1: Yes, um, yes. I mean, con- I mean, the, the the problem is that the language content divide is is really an artificial one. There isn't a divide. You can't have content without language, and you need to have uh, something to say. Um, so they are very much interrelated. Um, but it's it's partly the again the Lockean dichotomy that, that, that exists that, that makes the language element a kind of separate element, uh, an add-on, something that can be polished um, rather than than integral.
0: Yeah, um, that that puts me also in mind of <laughs> some of the things that. <laughs> Uh, you know, you also cited in, in the book and things that I've heard that people are given as advice on how to improve their writing, whether or not their first language is um, English. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, L2 users being told that uh, since Jane Austen and Charles Dickens are, you know, paragons of great style in English, uh, read them, and it will rub off. Uh, you seem to be critical of that approach. For example,
1: <laughs> yes. Well, um, we are now in the 21st century, and and that is advocating 19th century novels, um, which you know, which may be of interest to some students. I mean, I'm not saying don't don't read them, uh, but I don't think it necessarily helps with with the norms of of writing today, and particularly academic writing in in a particular discipline. So. Um, I understand the well-meaningness of of the advice um but I don't think it necessarily helps in 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 the way it's intended to
0: what must be the thinking then behind someone who would be passing on a tip of that sort to someone who's not in the case of the UK a home student for example I think that was the context also in which you brought it up
1: yes um well I think it's it it's the assumption or perhaps the perception of their of their own reading that these novels are are simple to read. Um, they're realist novels. Um, and so the assumptions are that you're representing reality. Um, and that's what it's expected of students. They, they're expected to represent the reality of, of, of their discipline. Um, but these novels, of course, don't necessarily help with developing an argument, which is normally the uh, the main expectation of 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 student academic writing. So I don't really know. I suppose it's it's maybe it's also the cultural Englishness of the novel as well. So perhaps it's the it's the cultural dimension that they're um, proposing rather than you know rather than actually developing their language
0: use. I mean, I find it also a bit paradoxical as a tip for this in the sense that you you wouldn't be able to translate Dickens or Austen's sentences into academic sentences. In fact, they would probably be the ones pointed up as being purple or flowery, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah. So it's and and that makes me wonder that uh, is is there sort of a divide going on in this person's mind or any person's mind who, who thinks like that, that on the one hand, there's beautiful writing and read it, but write this way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it just seems confusing.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. It is very confusing. I suppose it's an association with writing and literariness. Um, uh, I mean, for example, in the regulations of, of, of PhD examinations, for example, there's often a, a line or a clause saying the the written presentation must be of a literary style, um, and what, what exactly is meant by that, I don't know. But it presumably, it harks back again to kind of nineteenth century notions of literariness or scholarliness, um, being like uh, Jane Austen, you know, this so-called well, uh an arbiter of style, as it were, or with the reputation of being an arbiter of style, which, as you rightly point out, isn't actually the case.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's interesting that you bring up that point of literariness, because my experience has been with L2 or L1 um, writers that they they tend to associate this idea of good writing with, say, a novel, mm-hmm. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, a, cl- a, a sort of classic novel, mm-hmm. and yet they don't make the connection that that's not their good writing when they're in psychology, biology, or any other particular discipline. And it's something that I've felt that I've had to point up to them and say, "We're not in a creative writing class. We have to change our standards now."
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, it, it, yes. That, that uh, that's that's clearly something that that um, runs throughout kind of notions of of style i suppose i suppose that's what it is especially with people who 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 are not principally concerned with writing you know so they think they're being helpful but actually are not unfortunately
0: this, this uh, brings me also to you spend some time on style guides, mm-hmm. and I wonder what contribution they perhaps make there. Um, some of the bigger style guides along the line of Helen Sword or Steven Pinker, which have been published in the last decade. But then, of course, there's the classics that go way back, the Strunk and White. And uh, uh, the British version is um, it's right plain English. The name is escaping me right now. Um, Is
1: it Gowers or something? It doesn't matter. I think it might be Gowers. Excuse me? Sure. Gowers? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's
0: right. 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 He he would be probably something comparable on that end. And uh, you spent some time talking about the style and style seems to be a key word here, which probably does ring in these uh, resonances and associations with literariness. And I would, I would almost wonder how complicit these style guides are in focusing on that. Because if you look at many of their examples, Helen Sword would perhaps be there an exception, but many of their examples come directly out of the uh, nonfiction market. Yeah. Um, they may be academic in content, but they're clearly academics who, as writers, have broken out of the narrow field where you have a monograph that sells six hundred copies. Right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Yes, no, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's right. And of course, they're also trying to be um, uniform and monolithic and, and applies to all disciplines and all writing uh, um, rather than specific disciplines. So I suppose the literary is, is, is easily relied upon there because it's something that, that people, everybody reads, well perhaps I shouldn't say that, um, the assumption is that most people read novels um, and so have some understanding of, of style. Um, but again, it's I think it's ill, Ill thought out and, and misleading often. Um, a lot of these tips, I mean, they might be helpful to an extent. Um, I don't want to do mis- dismiss them out of hand, but there are so many contradictions within them. Um, and again, the idea of a of a tip, you know, a style tip, uh, assumes something relatively easy to get to grips with, um, and that is not not the case. Simply not the case. Um, so, from that point of view, I, I I don't advocate them, advocate these style readers
0: and it would seem as you're saying then that their attempt at broad coverage perhaps even their attempt at being sellable is what limits their usefulness when it comes down to you know the student or even perhaps the postdoc who's trying to get published inside his or her field
1: mhm yes yes i think i think that's right yeah um there you need much more kind of um well, you need to work with with peers, I suppose, and with with mentors uh, in in honing your style, and also reading lots of articles in in, in the field um, so before you can engage yourself with with what it is you want to say, want to put out there.
0: Your point on tips is also very good. The fact that it seems so easy, and it's interesting, also as you. Uh, make so clear in the book that many of the tips are actually negatively formulated. So they're about avoidance, which mm-hmm. would very much appear to perpetuate this regime of evaluation. And I've noticed in very many students, a, a as you also say in the book, sort of an internalization of these rules. So without reflection as to how useful passive or not passive might be, I or um, one might be, or any of the other sorts of typical points that are brought up in in uh, style guides, the students are just, to avoid trouble, <laughs> to avoid mistakes, uh, very keen on making sure that they stick with those rules.
1: Yes, that, that that's true. Um, and that's a pity really, isn't it? Because the it's not allowing them the freedom to explore and and actually um, say what they want to say in in with a sense of freedom, you know, and, and without the fear of getting things wrong. You know, it's again, it's the fear of of stigma, uh, which seems to be prevalent within academic culture because one is so readily stigmatized. So. Um, uh, it would be nice to have a shift of attitude in, in that regard, or you know, in all in all respects, um, whether it's the student struggling or um, the the postdoc trying to get published. Uh, if there weren't this fear of the stigma, um, they might be more willing to to attempt to get things published, you know, to submit them and and not be too afraid if it's rejected at the first attempt or whatever. Um, Yeah.
0: And the the thing that would probably help there is the point that you get into in your last chapter about written English and flux, which is uh, directly from the title, Mm -hmm. Um, this idea that you know, English has always, as every other language, been developing and changing and varying um, through time, through different places, and so on. We see it happening before our eyes right now. You give um, a very interesting exposition of the use of the and what is allowable now, what perhaps, let's say, a generation or two ago, an academic would clearly not have ever considered using. Um, I'm thinking in particular of when you have a noun followed by of, Mm -hmm. particularly in scientific writing, Mm -hmm. you have a a level of flexibility not to use the the there. So one example that I just happened to look up before, so this is not from the book, but uh, it it shows more or less what's going on. So if you have refinements that include excel, Uh, include acceleration of their voltage signaling. Mm -hmm. So very often we would think refinements which include the acceleration of their voltage signaling because um, acceleration is definite in that use. And definiteness comes through in English typically with the, but this is a published article in the sciences. So um, my, my point is that we see the language changing. We see the language being used, um, as you so rightly put, by more multilingual users than what we would consider um, native speakers, which you so rightly describe in the book as expert users. Yeah. So you give a entirely different view of the continuum between um, someone who uses the language close to themselves or someone who's just new to the language. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is rather that where are we going to find rules in language when language is in flux anyway? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, again, that that, that requires a shift in attitude, a greater greater tolerance for kind of heterogeneity of use, rather than the, expecting of what I call the smooth read. Again, where where you you read a text without any kind of uh, obstacle. Um, The expectation is that you should read a text like that, where it just flows and you're carried along with the flow. Um, And I think increasingly, uh, academics are are going to find that that's not the case. Um, And I think we do need to have to change our attitudes there. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, you, you make a few uh, very uh, sort of clear demands at the, uh, at the close of the book about um, proofreading not being a solution, and that the conversation now needs to open up across institutions about just these sorts of things, So, what is international English, how wide do we vary our acceptance of different types or different ways of writing. Right, the tolerance for awkward expressions or more attention, especially as you say, in the area of equitable treatment. So, yes. when you've got students with varying abilities in writing, um, how does that play out in their grades? How are they assessed on their content knowledge?
1: Yes, I, th- I think the contemporary ethos is definitely one of uncertainty and contingency. Um, and we, we do have to become more tolerant of the English as we read. Um, and, and not necessarily, exp- well, I don't know whether are we going towards different standardizations of English? Um, will there be a kind of European English standard, a British English standard, an American English standard, um, and an Asian English standard? I don't know. Um, it, it's possible that, that that's the trajectory that 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 is en route, because um, there are so many corpus linguists, developing corpora um, to detail what, what Asian English is like, how Asian speakers are using English, how European speakers from different European language backgrounds are using English. Um, that, that is a potentiality. Um, my own preference would be for just greater tolerance of heterogeneity, actually, and notions of um, tran- the transnational, for example, uh, uh, de- deflecting from notions of, of the national um, and a much more kind of multilingual awareness um, in general. Um, but it's hard to be specific about that. Um, I mean, I, I myself used to be much more prescriptive, like I would probably have corrected the the, the that you mentioned um, I wouldn't necessarily know, particularly in that example that you gave, because uh, it's intelligible. It, it doesn't really restrict the meaning or uh, obstruct the meaning. Um, and I, when I'm talking to, to teachers, I tend, I routinely tend to say now, <laughs> um, always hedge. You know, don't just teach hedging, but always always hedge your own teaching.
0: I, I'm also divided on on the issue of, say, the use of the and an example like that. Because I, I've I've two feelings. I've got the first feeling that clearly it's being used, and you know, as any good linguist knows, usage certainly is the future of, you know, acceptable. Mm-hmm. And um, and those things are anyway always in flux. Uh, so we need to see just as much as you say, you know, what works, what is understandable. On the other hand, I wonder if it is not perhaps also a, a reflex of this idea that there's language second and content first, because I wonder well, I mean, grammar, in this case, countability and definiteness, aren't they just as much intellectual or valuable pieces of content as the biology in this case that was being written about? And why can't we expect someone to study that as they're studying their other work?
1: Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good point. And it, it's, it's the kind of point I've made myself in the past as well. Um, it, 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 it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one um because again um when i've sort of attempted to advocate for uh, the uptake of international students writing um to be more flexible uh, i've often been told well uh, what about the home students who are having difficulty with with writing and i i really take that point that that you can't really make allowances for international students that you don't also make for for home students um and yes and the point you make i agree with this as as well so yeah it it's um it's a contested field as they say or a contested area very much contested area
0: yeah well- well, Joan, uh, you've you've been very generous with your time and speaking about contestedness, I think I'd like to leave off with uh, one last question, a bit where we began in the area of teaching. And I would like to hear your thoughts on how is it that if I might come back to this idea of a divide? how is it that the uh, disciplinary uh, the, the disciplined content teachers um, or the researchers themselves, could make a step in the direction of us writing um, development people and and what is the step that we writing development people could make in their direction
1: mm-hmm. well obviously it 's something that that has to be ongoing and it many, in many respects it comes down to individuals there are a lot of well meaning researchers. Who who value collaboration with with writing practitioners, as there are many who who don't. Um, And I think probably it is um, incumbent upon the writing practitioners to kind of put themselves forward more, to kind of slough off the sense of inferiority that might uh, surround them because of the institutional positioning and and, um, be a bit more bold and and speak to. the, the academics in whatever disciplinary field is, is more appropriate for their institution um, and just uh, attempt to begin that conversation. I think often when you do uh, on an individual level, it, it works, yeah. Although there's often another problem that occurs with that is that you, if you're actually making contact with a particular department uh, where you've got a lot of students, where a lot of your students come from, um, then you might make contact with a particular individual who then um, leaves that institution or uh, goes on to a a different role and and is no longer collaborating or or speaking with the the language centre or the writing centre, and then you have to begin again with another one. Um, So it it is an uphill struggle, Um, I hope. Sometimes it seems like a Sisyphean struggle, but I hope um, that things, I do hope and I have some yeah, optimism that things will get better.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, That is Joan Turner and her book, On Writtenness, The Cultural Politics of Academic Writing, was out 2018 with Bloomsbury Academic. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Joan. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye uh, to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.